Let's pray. Father, speak to us through your word. We need your spirit present with us as we look together at the scriptures of Paul's writings, that you inspired by your spirit. Lord, as you inspired Paul to write now, inspire our hearts and transform them by your power as we look at these words we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for many years, as I've been a Christian for many years, since I was in my teens, I've been hearing about revival and stories of revival. Perhaps one of the biggest is the Protestant Reformation. People discovered, in a sense, discovered the Bible. And they started reading the Bible and they say, no, we can't just trust in the institution of the so-called church. We need to trust in God revealed in his word, the Bible. And we find that we're saved only not by what we do, but by faith alone. Through God's grace to us alone. Revealed in scripture alone. And, and it transformed initially Europe and transformed the world. These ideas took seed. It became mixed up with politics because everything in Europe in those days was. But it did lead to massive social change, unquestionably. The Protestant Reformation. There was an English, the um, evangelical revival of 18th century England. Let me read just a, a, a quote about what England was like. England at the beginning of the 18th century, the early 1700s, was in a moral quagmire and a spiritual cesspool. You may not think of England at that time in this way because we've been so impacted by the evangelical revival. We don't think of England this way. Thomas Carlyle described the country's condition as stomach well alive, soul extinct. Deism, that is this just generalish Godish belief of Godish God everywhere, deism was rampant and a bland philosophical morality was standard fare in the churches. Sir William Blackstone visited the church of every major clergyman in London, but he says, did not hear a single discourse which had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero, a Roman philosopher. In most sermons he heard it would have been impossible to tell just from listening whether the preacher was a follower of Confucius, Muhammad or Christ. Just general God talk. Be good. Morally, the country was becoming increasingly decadent. Drunkenness was rampant. Gambling was so extensive that one historian described England as one vast casino. Newborns, newborns were exposed in the street in England in the early 18th century. Unwanted children just left. 97% of the infant poor in the workhouses died as children. 97% of poor kids in workhouses born in that context. Bear baiting and cockfighting were accepted sports. Tickets were sold to public ex executions like as to a theatre. The slave trade brought material gain to many while further degrading their souls. Bishop Berkeley wrote that morality and religion in Britain had collapsed to a degree that was never known in any Christian country. And then God, by his power, worked through this man called John Wesley, who began preaching all over the place. He actually had an enlightenment of his soul, almost came to know Jesus from his dead spirituality the dead religion, God spoke to him and he became a preacher and travelled all over the country. Another guy, George Whitfield, travelled all over the country and they brought 
through their preaching in villages, in cities, in towns, in the open air, brought a massive revival across the whole of England, which has shaped our culture and every culture in the Western society. That revival kind of spread across the Atlantic, not always so directly, but it ended up impacting this guy called Jonathan Edwards. And he started preaching and a revival broke up through him out in England, which they call the Great Awakening in America, which has transformed American society too. In 1857 to 1860, there was this massive revival in New York as businessmen, a few small number of businessmen began to gather in New York City, in Manhattan, to pray. And then that meeting just grew and grew and grew till thousands were meeting at lunchtime to pray. Over three years. In Ulster, the 1857 Ulster revival in um, Northern Ireland, which they say still makes Northern Ireland perhaps one of the most spiritually aware parts of the whole UK. The famous Welsh revival of 1904 to 1905, about a year long, where it's estimated that 100,000 people in Wales came to know Jesus as Saviour and Lord. Remarkable. To a lesser extent, in 1959, here in our own city, in our own nation, particularly in Sydney, the Billy Graham crusade of 1959, I have met so many people who became believers from a completely unsaved background through 1959, Billy Graham crusade. Transformed our city for a period. They tell me. Revival. And so I've been hearing most of my Christian life pray for revival. Oh, that the breath of God's Spirit would come and bring new life and new souls and that there would be fire. And we sing songs like, Revive us, O Lord. Pour out your Spirit. Unsheath your sword. Come on, Lord. Bring revival. But I've never seen it. I don't know if you have. Not in those sorts of ways. I wasn't here in 59, and that was, people would say that wasn't a real revival. That was just a big movement, just a big thing, which is kind of almost disturbing because as I've heard people talk about revival, I kind of feel like I'm responsible. I keep hearing this if predicate. If we do this and this and this and this and this, then the Lord will send revival. I haven't prayed enough. I'm not committed enough. I haven't sacrificed enough. What do we need to do? Because God has brought revival in the past, streams in the desert. We pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a big prayer. You know, perhaps the greatest revival of all, though, I think without doubt, the greatest revival of all happened in the first century in the Roman Empire. There was one Nazarene Jew who started teaching and healing, gathered a group of 12 men to follow him. He was crucified, the leader. He was executed. And out of his movement came one of the greatest influences in world history. Transformed the Roman Empire. Transformed the world. Not by military conquest, not by this great marketing campaign which these 12 men dreamt up, not by an effective online strategy or a public relations coup, but this revival came about because of historical events. They said, all these people who brought this revival, that their leader, Jesus, was crucified and dead but then raised again 
and is King and Lord. And through those historical events, we have the word of the gospel, the good news of Jesus of salvation and hope. That you can be saved from sin, there can be forgiveness, and you have hope for, for the future, for today. And this message has changed lives. It's had led to new communities being formed, communities that have often faced persecution and resistance and opposition, but that spread and grow as they have so many times in the world through godly gossip and the power of transformed lives in new communities of love and hope. Most of all, they grow, I believe, I'm sure, because of the work of the Spirit of God. One example of this we see in the Macedonian city, the northern Greek city of Thessalonica. We're in this series in 1 Thessalonians, introducing the family of God. There's this new birth, this new family. Paul is on his second missionary journey, telling people about Jesus, this good news. And God says to him one night, he's in Turkey, God says, go to Macedonia, which is what we call northern Greece. So he goes. And he starts telling people about Jesus and people believe, but there's so much resistance and so much opposition. He, he flees city, goes from the city, then he ends up in this big city of Thessalonica, a big trade city. It's a free city. It's got its own rule. The Romans let it rule itself. It's a trade center. It's a government center. It's got a good history. And there's a lot of religion in Thessalonica. Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue. And we read in Acts chapter 7, as was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And he explained and he proved that the Messiah, the anointed king, had to suffer and rise from the dead. And he says, this Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah. Some of the Jews were persuaded. And joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. In other words, revival broke out in Thessalonica. So powerful was this revival that the city formed, there was a riot in the city because they didn't like this change, this new message, this, these people turning to the God of Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas had to leave the city at night for their lot to, 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 to protect their lives because of this riot. <clears throat> now, some revivals are short-lived. They say the Welsh Revival of 1904 was about a one-year revival. Others, you might say, is a big, big moments, but, but not this one because Paul goes from northern Greece down to southern Greece, down to <clears throat> the city of Corinth, starts ministering there. He sends his mate Timothy back up to see how things are going up north in the churches that he started up north. Timothy comes back and... It's good news, Paul. There's, there, there's revival, Paul. The church is growing and thriving. It's wonderful. How is this? What, what, what's, what's going on? So, you know, you can just imagine Timothy describing the ecstasy of their gatherings, all the emotional outpouring. People are in tears, people are lying on the floor, their meetings are packed, there's manifestations of power. Well, actually, Paul, we don't hear that. Paul does, however, tell us what happens about this revival. And I wonder, could such a revival even break out here? 
with our desires for a new work at Eastwood, could revival break out amongst all the Chinese who are recent immigrants, amongst the Koreans who don't know Jesus, amongst the Anglos who don't know Jesus in Eastwood? Could that happen? Some things to note. Firstly, the church in Thessalonica is God's church. Now, I spoke about this on my first talk, verses 1 to 3. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church, to the gathering of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> this is God's church, and so the first point is revival is God's work. It's not our work. The sentence continues, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You are beloved of God. God, your election, your choosing is in and by God. And so we come upon this difficult doctrine, which I have to say, I am convinced is a consistent teaching of the Bible. God is sovereign. God's Holy Spirit open eye, opens eyes that are blind to him. It's God's work. He brings us from darkness to light. God elects his faithful and beloved people. It's God's work. Deuteronomy chapter 7, speaking of Israel, the Lord says to Israel, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people. You had nothing impressive. For you were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Because <clears throat> the Lord loved you. He set his love upon you. John Stott, the great um, British Anglican minister and writer, puts it this way. The doctrine of election. He chose us because he loves us. And he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love. And with that mystery, we must rest content. Bottom line, revival does not depend upon us. I do not need to feel guilty about a lack of revival. It is not my work. It is not your work. It is not our work. It's not something we can manufacture. This is the work of God by His Spirit. And this doctrine is meant to bring us assurance. And then... In that assurance, lead us to prayer. Oh, Lord, do it again. Do it even amongst us. Lord, you are able. Lord, do it through this new work we're hoping to start at Eastwood. Bring revival. How, however, does Paul know that truly indeed revival has broken out in Thessalonica? How would we know if revival has broken out? Well, the key thing is the reception of is reception, the reception of the word. Verse 4, 
Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Paul went to the synagogue and he just opened the scriptures, the old, what we would call the Old Testament. And he showed them that the Messiah of the scriptures had to suffer and rise. And he proclaimed to them, Jesus is that Christ, that Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Jesus, there is in him only life. In him there is hope. This is Paul's gospel, his good news. And when Paul did that in Thessalonica, the word of God found fertile soil. It found receptive hearts. <clears throat> the Spirit was at work. Now the gospel, this good news, news has to come in words. It has to be reported. It's good news. But when those words come, you can ignore them. You can reject them. You can even intellectualize them. As they did in Athens when Paul went to Athens on his way to Corinth as it did amongst many, many Jews that Paul preached to in the synagogue. Oh, they heard. They may have debated, but the, the word hit stony ground and it was not received. <clears throat> See, what we need for revival to break out is we need word and the Spirit of God. We're told that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, but the Word sitting on the shelf on its own, is totally impotent. But with the Spirit at work, with God's Spirit at work, well, here's Hebrews chapter 4. For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And this is what happened in Thessalonica. Verse 5 again. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. It cut through. You know how we lived among you for your sake. It's interesting that Paul goes on to now talking about himself. There's no mention of emotion or ecstasy or full meetings or lots of hands in the air. It's the word and the Spirit cutting through people's hearts. Laying them open so that the dead come to life and sinners repent and the blind see. The Word finds fertile soil. It comes in the power. You notice it comes in power. This is his last phrase. Embodied in Paul and Timothy and Silas. At least in those three. They see how they live. That the gospel's taking root in their heart and it's changing them. There's this almost this transfer of power through word and the spirit producing fruit in keeping with repentance with a new life that leads to the strengthening of the word and the spirit and the message bringing fruit, cutting through people and transforming lives. There's a radical transformation. The spirit cuts open our hearts and begins us to make us more like Christ. Pete was, I listened to Pete's talk from last week. He was talking about this very thing. 
what God's purposes is for his people. You became, says Paul, when revival broke out, imitators of us and the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Ikea. Paul and Silas lived lives worthy of imitation because they followed the way of the Lord Jesus. And then the Thessalonians' lives are turned upside down and they follow Paul and Silas and the Lord Jesus and they become a model and example for others. This is revival. This is real revival. It's seen most powerfully in lives lived. It's not seen in gatherings. We might get a sense, we might get a taste in gatherings, but the power is not in the gathering. The power is in community. The power is in lives changed, conformed to the pattern of Jesus Christ, bringing glory to him, as Pete said last week. I wonder, you know, when revival comes, the family values of this new family start to manifest themselves. And I wonder if at times our expectations are too low. Will you believe in Jesus? And if you believe in Jesus, will you embrace our subculture? There's no, I'm not saying there's anything particularly wrong with our subculture and parts of what we do. But will you come here and sit on a red chair on a Sunday morning? And then have nice morning tea and talk to a few people? Will you listen to Christian songs? Will you sing the songs that we sing? And not the other songs. This is our subculture. This is what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. No, we're called to so much more. We're called to countercultural living, not subcultural living, countercultural. Paul to, the, Paul to his mate Titus. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, here's real Christian, here's real revival, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, while we wait in hope, the appearing in glory of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us, from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do good. Transformed lives. There is revival. There is power. Forget about what your gatherings look like. Not that it doesn't matter, but gee, that's not where the power is. You know, the gathering, have the best, greatest gathering. Have this sense of awesome presence of God. I tell you, within a day it's gone. A community of transformed lives, I tell you, that never goes. People committed to love, committed to sacrifice, committed to the other. People full of joy and hope. That's, you can't argue with that. That's power. See how they love one another despite the affliction. Look at their joy. And it's not this, oh, I've got this deep, deep joy. You know, joy is not happiness, but I've got the joy. It's not that, you know. It's the joy of hope that expresses itself. People living vibrant and hopeful lives. 
not trying, not performing. Oh, look at how much I'm doing. Look at how much I'm working. But people who are resting in God and at peace with the world and trusting God's sovereignty, as Pete was again saying last week, people who are known through godly gossip. Have you heard about those people at Penno? Have you heard just what's going on there? Have you heard how they love one another? We had a meeting at Eastwood on Thursday. You've got the newsletter there. It's the first meeting of the revitalization team, the oversight team for this new work. So much to consider. It's a bit scary. Like, what is this new church going to look like? And what do we have to plan and organize and structure and practical legal sort of things, practical things like websites and starting dates and getting people trained and raising up a team here, blah, 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 blah. On and on it goes. Important discussions. Systems that we'll set up. But you know, church is not systems, structures, music, training programs. They do not make family. I can get all those at a massive big conference. What makes family, healthy family, the family that you want to be part of? Love and sacrifice and service and enjoyment of one another despite our oddities and joy in trial and hope for the future. That's what church should be about, the family of God. That's what happens when revival takes deep seat in a church, in a community. And you know what? Can't help it. Can't help it. Bursts with life, literally. Just bursts with life. There's an outward impetus. People become mission-minded. They start asking the questions that Beth asked as a young girl. A young Christian. We're not given God's spirit to make us happy, but to transform us. So that the prayer we pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is realized through us. So verse 8, the Lord's message, these revival broke out in Thessalonica. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Ikea, not only in your part of Greece, and that's a pretty big area, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. People talk to us, you heard about it? Yeah, of course we've heard about the Thessalonians. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. See, if revivals broke out, you don't keep the good news to yourself. You share it with joy. And you share it in word and deed. <clears throat> so their faith in God goes out. Their generosity is known. This godly gossip spreads, it would seem, through the Roman Empire. There's this, and you notice also it's a corporate knowing. We've heard about the Thessalonians in Christ Jesus. <coughs> the gathering there. <coughs> the body of Christ. They tell. Here's what they're talking about. Here's what they're saying about you. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, those two verses deserve a talk on their own. 
It's a summary of Christian life and true revival. <clears throat> they speak of how you turned. There was what we call repentance. They turned from their false, dead gods, the things of this world, to God, the true and living God. They forsook their dead idols. They turned to serve. Their focus was other way, other ways placed. It's interesting, they actually went from slavery into slavery. Slavery to the true and living God. From chains to freedom. Freedom because it's the true God, the living God. Why would you serve any other God than the true and living God? I went to Felix and Amanda's wedding yesterday. It was a great time. As I was there, I was struck how much the clock is ticking. Felix and Amanda are married. Listen to Pete's talk during the week, as I said, struck by how much the clock is ticking. What's life about? Get educated, parents put all this stuff. You go to uni or get some college, get some skills, start a job, get married, build a relationship, have a family, then you put into those, get to build up your assets. When your assets are sufficient enough, you hope and you pray, you stop work, and then you rest. Well, actually, I tell you what, you die. But it takes a while for most people. 20 years. And you know, by the time you get to my age, or the time you get to retirement, you realise that 20 years is a very short period of time. Because it wasn't long ago your kids were at school. 20 years ago. I'll be dead in that time. Felix and Amanda got married. Gosh, they better hurry up and have kids. How old are they? Let's see, the clock's ticking. I've got three kids. None of them are married. Oh, geez, the clock's ticking. <laughs> now, you laugh. I wish I was. And I love my kids, and they're great. And I'm sure they're fine, and they're young. But you feel it. You want to become a rock star, and you're now 23. You're still playing in bands with your mates who are no good, not nearly as good as you. Well, the clock's ticking. If you live to serve false gods, that clock keeps ticking. Why would you do that? Serve the true and living God. What a difference that makes. Because then you have hope. <coughs> a patient hope. For a glorious and hopeful and right future. As you wait for the return of the Lord Jesus and deliverance from the wrath so that you know the grave, the wages of sin, is death and that is not the end. Separation from the one who gives life and is life is not the end. All this through Jesus, this good news. The Son of God who was raised, who died for our sins to pay the price and is raised from the dead and is now exalted on high and is returning and is promised to keep and rescue his people and bring them into his family, his kingdom forever. Suddenly the clock stops ticking. With saying, with, suddenly these things don't matter that you worry about, do they? 
Me worrying about my kids, you worrying about your job, worrying about your career, worrying about becoming a star, whatever it is. Worrying about death because I've just retired and I better get my holidays in quick or I'll be 80 soon. Stop worrying because the future's okay. We're called to the family of God, which is a place where we can belong. This is what happened in Thessalonica. Revival broke out and people gathered around Jesus. We pray for it, we sing about it, we hope for it. And I wonder, is that too much? Are we expecting too much? Could revival happen amongst us? Could revival happen at Eastwood? Well, I pray if it does, and I pray that it does, that it might happen because we stop relying upon ourselves. But we rest on God and his elective love, his power. And so we pray. Yes, we pray. Yes, we pray, but there's no if connected to our prayer. We just pray trusting in God. We hold forth the word of God, the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we call upon people to receive it with gladness because we have this confidence that God works through his word by his spirit in power, bringing full conviction of faith. And we expect, oh, when I see people come to faith, it's scary because I feel the burden, the responsibility, but, you know, we expect the spirit to transform and turn people from idols to the true and living God. And we expect the Spirit to transform church life and through us to build the kingdom and change society. See, Eastwood Baptists, the current form, they know they need to change. Now, that's going to be hard. So let's work out how we can get them to change. Let's just ask the Spirit to change them and us in humility. And we hope as that happens that the light and the growth and the gospel and faith just burst forth from us. It's uncontainable. Despite the trials, we shine. Despite the trials which may well keep coming in our society, we live with hope and joy. And we're known, not because we've got a great marketing strategy or the best website, we're known because, what God is, because of what God is doing amongst that and that is, that is expressed in transformed community. That's just beautiful. I'm a great believer in beauty. It's a great measure for things. I believe God's church should be beautiful. It can't help but be beautiful. And often it's not. And beauty is kind of hard to argue with. People might see it slightly different, but it's kind of hard to argue with. Is it too much to hope for this and pray for this? Not if I understand the scriptures correctly, this passage. And I, uh, the challenge I leave is that we pray for revival with humility, not with a big if on the front, as if it's all about us. Just pray for revival and seek to be faithful. And quite frankly, if you're hearing the word of God for you, make that commitment, leave Pano, go to Eastwood. Amen.